welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guests are Christopher Green, Professor of Law and HLA Hart Scholar in Law and Philosophy at the University of Mississippi School of Law, and Evan D. Burnick, a law clerk to the Honorable Judge Diane S. Sykes of the Seventh Circuit. We will discuss their draft article, What is the Object of the Article 6 Oath? So welcome to the to the show, Chris and Evan. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Brian. Thanks to be here. <laughs> Great. Um, so I really enjoyed reading this kind of rich and richly detailed article about something that I'd never thought about at all before. Um, and I imagine a lot of my listeners haven't thought about it either. So I wonder if one of you could start by just saying a little bit about what the Article 6 oath actually is and what it's for. Sure. So uh, this is Chris. Uh, so Article 6 uh, says, um, this constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land, and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary notwithstanding. Uh, that's paragraph uh, uh, paragraph two. And then paragraph three is uh, the oath. The senators and representatives before mentioned and the members of the several state legislatures and all executive and judicial officers, both of the United States and of the several states, shall be bound by oath or affirmation to support this constitution. But no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. Um, so this article is trying to vindicate um, uh, a thought that I've had really ever since law school when I started uh, thinking, well, why is the Constitution binding? How is it binding? Well, if you look through, Article 6 tells you exactly how it's binding. It's binding uh, in virtue of an oath. Um, and if you look at uh, Article uh, 5, uh, talks about uh, later amendments becoming valid to all intents and purposes as part of this Constitution. Uh, Article 7 talks about ratification uh, being sufficient for the establishment of this Constitution. You look at the preamble, talking about we the people do ordain and establish this Constitution. Uh, the basic thought is, well, you got to figure out what this Constitution, what that phrase refers to. And I uh, uh, have an earlier article talking about go just going through the, that phrase in the Constitution, in, in the, the federal Constitution, and also a bunch of state constitutions using similar language. Um, and this article is really looking at uh, the issue from the perspective of current culture. Uh, and for various reasons, uh, that is uh, an essential part of uh, constitutional theory as we see it. And uh, uh, so I'm trying to fill in some gaps in the uh, in the early article of mine, and also uh, uh, fill in, uh, I think, some some missing uh, missing argument uh, in some uh, recent uh, theories, uh, like uh, uh, Will Bode and Steve Sachs's view of the Constitution. Uh, anyway, that's that's from my perspective. Uh, Evan, you can you can uh, say what's what's getting you into this project. Sure. I think that the, this article's uh, principal contributions consist of two claims that we advance that, to the extent of my knowledge, are novel. Uh, the first is, is an ontological claim 
about the nature of this constitution denoted in the text. And the second is a moral claim about what one ought to do given the nature of the constitution denoted by the text. And given that every public official in the United States makes a promise to this and to follow this entity or to take um, an interpretive posture that's dictated by this entity uh, seriously and to follow it faithfully. Um, we're not the first constitutional scholars to explore the original meaning of the oath or the textual meaning of the oath. Um, Richard uh, Ray has done uh, very important and fascinating work in recent years sketching out um, the meaning of this constitution and talking a bit about the moral obligations that attach um, upon promising to follow this constitution. Um, but despite the fact that the oath plays a very significant role in our constitutional culture, we found it, Chris and I have found it surprising that the whole question, both questions, the ontological question and the moral question, really have been underexplored within constitutional scholarship. Uh, Professor Ray's paper is really the only full-length work exploring both the ontological and the moral questions entailed by the Article 6 oath. Um, so our contribution is to flesh out a distinctive and novel position from that which uh, Ray has fleshed out in recent years, and um, to explore both the ontological and the moral question seriously. So, so maybe you could start then with the ontological question posed by swearing an oath to this constitution. And in particular, you distinguish between sort of first and second order ontological questions, as it were, that might present themselves in thinking about what the sort of object of the oath is. Can you can you talk a little bit about that distinction? So, yeah, so first order and second order, um, uh, first order originalism and second order uh, or meta originalism, or uh, some people started calling it originalism squared, um, that distinction. So first order originalism as uh as I would uh, use the term, as we would use the term, is talking about original meaning. So it's been uh, uh, talked about a lot lately, original public meaning being the touchstone of constitutional analysis or being the proper normative uh, uh, constitutional touchdown for analysis. Um, that has to do with stability of meaning uh, expressed by the text over time. So whatever it expressed, whatever the text expressed at uh, the founding, uh, uh, that is uh, the same thing that uh, uh, is binding today. Uh, Meta-originalism, uh, so that's a thesis that we both, we think is is true. Uh, we, th we, we are first-order originalists. We think that uh, original meaning is binding. We also think that we have the original constitution, uh, and that's binding today. Uh, we swear an oath today to the same constitution that George Washington swore an oath uh, to support. Uh, people say that regularly. And we think that's uh, that's true. It's a true metaphysical claim about the constitution. So if we have the same constitution uh, today that we have at the founding, then whatever the nature of the constitution was, uh, whatever its uh, 
essential attributes, whatever it's thisness, uh, to put uh, uh, to put it in in a kind of medieval terminology, uh, has to be the same today as it was at the founding. Um, that thesis, the meta-originalism, is consistent with thinking, well, we've always had a living constitution that didn't treat the meaning as binding. So if the meaning were only a defeasible indication of what we should do, but it could be overridden, uh, and it was overridden when Washington was president, uh, and it's over, uh, uh, can be overridden today, uh, that's consistent with meta-originalism, uh, with saying we have the original uh, constitution uh, uh, still in effect, but it's always had uh, this uh, uh, morphing uh, ability. Um, we said so. So the, the the this piece is is trying to uh, not, uh, nail down uh, the meta originalism part. Uh, once you establish that, then you have to say, okay, and the original Constitution uh, entails the original meaning of uh, the text in its original context. So that so there's a there's an additional empirical historical claim that you need in order to get from meta originalism to first order originalism. Meta originalism about the Constitution being the same the original constitution being still in effect today, uh, that entailing original meaning expressed by the text. Um, so I, I hope that that helps. Uh, to concretize that just a little bit, Akhil Amar, Professor Akhil Amar, has argued that there are various means of amending the constitution outside of the Article 5 process that are authorized by the textually expressed content of the Constitution. So the original Constitution, as a first order matter, authorizes constitutional change through means that aren't necessarily, uh, well, that are baked into the content of the original Constitution, but don't lock us to that textually expressed content. Um, that's consistent with what our claim, what our claims are. We argue that you know, whatever processes for constitutional change are authorized by this constitution are binding on public officials who take an oath to this constitution now. And that might mean um, that processes that aren't set forth in Article 5 can authorize constitutional change. Perhaps the uh, Article 3's grants of power to judges to decide cases not only in law but in equity authorizes some form of li living constitution. Whatever. The point is that it needs to be part of this constitution from the beginning. So would it be fair to say that like there's one question about what, what constitution we started with? And then the second question is what kinds of changes are consistent with that constitution remaining the same constitution over time? Well, the claim that we make in this paper is that to the extent that the constitution, this constitution can be said to have a thisness, to have certain essential properties in virtue of which it is what it is, those must include the original processes for constitutional change. If you want constitutional change, you have to have recourse to this constitution. This constitution is the Founders' Constitution. The Founders' Constitution contains certain processes for constitutional change. You've got to go through those. We don't make any positive claim about what those processes are. We'll stipulate that Article 5 sets forth one such process. Um, but we don't speak to other processes that might be there. The only thing that we claim is that if you want to be able to make a claim that you are following this constitution, plausible, you need to be following those original processes because they are part of the Constitution's identity. You can't, you know, 
add or subtract processes from the Constitution and still have this Constitution. Hmm. Well, so in the paper, you also provide a bunch of examples of different people talking about the oath and the meaning of the oath in different contexts and present them as kind of evidence in favor of your thesis. So I wonder if you could talk just briefly about sort of what you think those examples show and why you think they provide evidence of sort of a sort of cross demographic, cross temporal uh, sense of what's taking place when people swear the oath. Sure. So um, this kind of information, uh, so we, you know, if you look at, you know, the congressional record, if you just pull up the latest issues and, you know, do a control F oath, uh, you'll find this kind of evidence uh, pretty regularly. Um, it's, it's what's taken for granted uh, by people in both political parties. Uh, it's taken for granted over time. Uh, so uh, a couple of weeks ago at a conference, I, I asked, it was, it was a, a debate about originalism. And I, I asked uh, 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 the non-originalists, well, do you think we have uh, the same constitution today that we had at the founding. And uh, uh, not original said, well, of course we do. Uh, it, it really is and taken for granted. Uh, and the, the, the fact that it gets said as frequently as it does, um, you know, this sentence gets repeated a lot. You know, the United States has the oldest continuously currently operational constitution in the world. That sentence gets pronounced a lot. And nobody as far as I know, jumps up and says, well, no, maybe it was swapped out uh, uh, in the meantime. Um, uh, you do once in a great while find people who say, uh, well, you know, maybe the Civil War uh, and the Reconstruction Amendments amount to uh, uh, some sort of constitutional revolution. So we're really in the Second Republic now. Um, you know, setting those sorts of uh, uh, issues apply uh, aside. Um, well, for instance, I, I don't think anybody says we have a different constitution now than we had uh, in uh, uh, after Reconstruction. Uh, so that, uh, maybe you'll find people who think that uh, the New Deal uh, revolution or something was was the replacement of one constitution with another. But setting you know setting those those sorts of uh, uh, unusual views aside, you know people today think we have the same constitution. Uh, uh, and the people who swear oaths, who 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 think that they're being faithful to the Constitution, the thing that they think they're being faithful to, the thing that they represent to their constituencies that they're being faithful to, is the same thing that uh, uh, Washington uh, uh, claimed to be faithful to. And this is a, a you know a, a kind of a very obvious, simple overwhelming fact about our constitutional culture, which has metaphysical implications. It's a claim about the identity of a thing over time. Right. So at this point, a skeptic might be somewhat concerned that we are trying to bootstrap a constitutional theory of, uh, or a, a controversial theory of constitutional interpretation into a, you know, a linguistic or a metaphysical claim that if all of these oath takers were really confronted with the proposition that, hey, your oath binds you to follow the founder's constitution, whatever the content of that constitution might be, they would claim surprise. They would say, well, no, what I actually mean is something else. Or they would equivocate in some other way. 
Um, we do address that issue in our paper. Um, we've, you know, as oath-obsessed constitutional theorists, we've spent a lot of time going through the congressional record. Um, and it really is striking the extent to which these claims are consistent. And nobody really publicly deviates from the conclusions that we draw from their language. Now, so it's totally plausible that if forthrightly confronted with these propositions, that your language actually commits you to something that would totally surprise you, and you might even find morally odious, um, our constitutional culture would change. But in, you know, without compelling reason to think that you know, the underlying content really is morally odious. Um, we think that the burden of proof should fall on those who would argue that, you know, notwithstanding the fact that public officials continuously claim X and represent to the public that they're following X, um, they have a significant moral space to do Y. Mm. Well, so you mentioned in your paper, and I was thinking about this when I was reading the paper as well, the kind of the Theseus's ship issue. Right. So, I mean, like there's this old classical Greek metaphor, right? Like if you replace every part of Theseus's ship on the voyage at the end of the voyage, is it still the same ship? I mean, why wouldn't that same metaphor preserve the thisness of the Constitution in the sense that, you know, it's the same vessel. It's just all its parts or at least some of its parts have been replaced with new parts over time, right? Why wouldn't that preserve the unity over time of the constitution just as much as an unchanging constitution would, or one changing only in constitutionally prescribed ways? Yeah, well, so if you think of the ship of Theseus, the, the way that uh, metaphysicians uh, talk about it, uh, one reaction that people have is, well, it is the same ship uh, because to be a ship means to have a certain structure. Uh, and it has a certain shape that all of the, the, the uh, planks are related in. And uh, if you take out one plank and, and replace it with a new uh, uh, plank, that changes the matter, but it doesn't change the form. And the identity of a ship is based on the form, not the matter. Another view would be a material, you know, a matter-based view of the identity of ships would say, well, when you replace a plank, you're replacing a little bit of the ship. Uh, so it's not really the same ship, but it's a slightly different ship. Okay. So that view of the identity of ships. Um, so, you know, suppose you uh, promise uh, uh, the owner of a ship uh, when, you know, when you go set out for Troy or something, I'm going to you know, bring back the same ship that I, I set out for. Um, if you understand that in terms of the matter of the ship, um, you're only going to be partly successful if you replace some planks uh, along the way. But if you understand it in terms of form uh, and you preserve the structure, you're, you're going to have, have satisfied that that promise. So. The key thing with respect to a constitution is figuring out, well, just what is it that makes a constitution the same constitution? What are the identity conditions? Uh, what kind of possibilities for change does it have? And if it has, if it doesn't legitimately have those possibilities for change, like, uh, you know, it, it, if it doesn't legitimately have uh, uh, a possibility of being changed by 
judicial action interpreting, uh, uh, purporting to interpret it, um, then all those little changes are slight deviations, slight swappings out of uh, the original constitution for something else. Uh, so they're small, perhaps, maybe they might be big, but uh, they're acts of infidelity if we uh, support that instead of the original one. So um, you know, why does it matter if we have a, uh, a slightly different constitution? It's just the reason it doesn't is because we've promised to support one thing and we're doing something else. Well, so maybe you could talk a little bit as well about kind of questions of fidelity if it turns out that values associated with the original constitution are no longer consistent with broadly held values. I mean, there's plenty of areas in which we might identify, you know, kind of values that were commonly held arguably constitutional values, maybe not, I guess that would really depend uh, at the time the constitution was ratified, but that we no longer think are morally acceptable or even find them profoundly odious today. I mean, how do we think about those kinds of changes in relation to fealty to the original constitution? So part of my answer to that question is that the values are important and they're relevant to understanding the context of constitutional communication um, in which uh, the constitution was drafted and ratified. Um, But they are not themselves this constitution. The constitution doesn't state a series of values. It states propositions about how a government should be organized that are themselves downstream from values um but the language um uh on which you know chris in his work has focused so much attention even long before i got to this uh got onto the scene of this constitution is a specific reference to a particular kind of text that is historically situated at a particular point in time and we're not committed to the proposition that we need to follow like the set of values that were legally salient at the time that the Constitution was ratified, um, but only the textual expression um, that may have been informed by those values in various ways. So that's my initial answer. You know, that said, there are some parts of the Constitution, uh, the text, that are pretty morally odious. So the, I mean, the, the uh, two big examples, Article 1, Section 9, Clause 1, talks about the importation of persons, uh, persons being treated as an object of commerce. That's morally odious. Article 4, uh, Section 2, Clause 3, uh, talks about uh, people bound to service and uh, that... Uh, I think pretty clearly refers to enslaved people. Uh, they've got to go back. Uh, uh, so to ordinary uh, enslaved person at the time of the founding, uh, you're subject to an unjust uh, uh, practice. Does the fact that that unjust practice is uh, to some extent uh uh, ba- baked into this uh, thing, the Constitution that some people are swearing an oath to. Does does that practice make uh, uh, the enslavement any less morally odious? Well, no, not really. Does it make uh, uh, the extraction of your labor from you uh, by uh, force uh, any more mo- morally acceptable? No, it doesn't. Um, 
But uh, we've got a constitution that over time, and Article 5 says, you know, the later amendments uh, are treated to all intents and purposes as part of this constitution. Uh, it becomes a lot better uh, with the 13th, 14th, 15th amendments, later amendments as well. Um, it becomes the kind of thing that is sufficiently close, uh, sufficiently valuable uh, as a social entity that promises to keep it. Uh, keeping those promises according to their terms uh, is more morally valuable, we think, uh, than discarding those moral promises. Yeah, so neither of us is committed to the claim that the Constitution is morally optimal. Uh, the specific claim that we stake in the paper is that, to borrow uh, Professor Richard Fallon's language, it's minimally morally legitimate. Uh, it's better than the state of nature, and the costs of replacing it with a perhaps somewhat better regime are probably prohibitive. And under a regime such as that, um, the promise to follow the fundamental law uh, can underwrite a moral obligation to do precisely that. But neither of us is committed to the claim that, like, under an evil regime, you know, the paradigmatic uh, Nazi judge would somehow be obliged to follow the law because he promised to do that. Um, just like a contractual promise to kill somebody isn't un enforceable because it's unconscionable, so too... Um, we believe that a moral obligation cannot attach to a promise that's made uh, when the background conditions are extremely unjust. What, one other thing uh, that we do say about the ethics um, of the oath, uh, uh, in addition to the, the problem that the, the, the uh, Constitution itself is morally uh, imperfect, we uh, uh, talk a little bit about the history of mental reservationism. Uh, so that's a, a tradition that dies, uh, for, as most people tell the history, uh, uh, in 1656 at the hands of Blaise Pascal. Uh, but it was a very hotly uh, debated, uh, and there were there was violence, uh, and uh, there were uh, it was very hotly debated during the 17th century. Uh, our current oath, in, uh, American oath, since 1862 has uh, specifically disavowed mental reservation. So mental reservations are basically saying something but thinking something differently. Uh, so if there's a conflict between uh, what you say and what you're thinking uh, or what ordinary people would think the meaning of is of what you're saying and what you're thinking, well, you have a conflict between what's called the animus imponentis, the, uh, the motive of the one imposing the oath, and the animus uh, gerantis, uh, the motive of the one swearing. So the, uh, the, the, the better moral tradition, we think, uh, since uh, uh, 1656, uh, pretty clear to, to most people, uh, is the tradition that emphasizes the animus imponentis, the motive of the one imposing the oath, not uh, the particular mental state of the one taking the oath. Mm -hmm. Is it at least possible that when the people, when different officers take the oath to the constitution, that they believe that they're not reserving anything in their mind, but that they each one might believe that they're swearing to a constitution with different qualities of one kind or another? And would that in any way affect your assessment of the relationship between the oath and the nature of the constitution in a kind of objective sense. 
So, yeah, I think probably the ordinary case that, you know, is the biggest challenge to our thesis is the officer who in good faith follows or understands himself to be committed to following the contemporary Supreme Court's understanding of the Constitution together with the contemporary meaning of the text and any number of moral considerations that he extracts from our constitutional history. Can somebody like that be said to be, you know, acting in bad faith by following that constitution as opposed to this constitution? Um, and I think that the best way to think about how to resolve that question is to, uh, is to think about whether there's good reason empirically to believe that, um, the distinction between a constitution um, that consists of text and the gloss put, a, put on that text by the Supreme Court that continually refers to the constitution as if it has a fixed identity is really talking about a fundamentally different entity than this constitution as we, you know, Chris and I understand it. Um, are there essential characteristics that that constitution is lacking? Um, if there are not, we're really not talking about fundamentally different constitutions. We're talking about a constitution, the constitutions, the extensions, the extension of which are, are somewhat different, but those differences don't, you know, amount to entirely changing the subject and talking about something else in the same way that, say, a river bank is different from a financial institution that's also denoted by the term bank. Um, looking through the constitutional culture as expressed in, you know, the statements of the public officials that we list in, um, in the article and the rhetoric from the Supreme Court, we don't think that there's a fundamental change in subject going on in the ordinary case. If there was, we might have to have a normative conversation about, you know, just what, just how fair it is to hold public officials to account uh, for deviating from a fundamentally different object. Um, but we don't think we're there yet. And this is, this is the kind of thing you have in ordinary life all the time. You have two people who manage to have genuine disagreement about a common object, uh, which I mean, you think I mean, that happens literally every day and many times every day for all of us. Um, we are able, we think, uh, to pick out the Constitution with the words, this Constitution, despite the fact that we disagree about a lot of things about it. Um, and this happens uh, with respect to any material object or, or immaterial object, any, anything that people talk about and disagree about. Um, they can manage, it's, it's a complicated philosophy question, uh, philosophical question about how this happens, but we manage to refer to the same thing um, despite uh, the existence of disagreements about it. And we think this, uh, that our, our current state of our language of speaking about the Constitution has not gotten to the point where we're no longer even talking about the same thing, not even having a disagreement. Um, if we have a disagreement, it has to be a disagreement about something. And we think there still is a thing uh, that we're disagreeing about. Mm. Well, but what does that say about a theory of constitutional change, though, right? I mean, going back to the kind of first order, second order point that you made, 
I mean, you know, does that allow for a certain amount of divergence then in understanding about what exactly the features of this constitution might be and what the best ways of interpreting it are? And I guess what I took away from your paper anyway was, you know, ways in which it might undergo change over time historically and whether it might acquire new ways of undergoing change. Yeah, I mean, well, what it get, what it gives us, what uh, this this view gives us in terms of how to resolve disagreement, it's not going to cause the disagreement to, to vanish, but it gives you an empirical question uh, uh, about going back to the uh, uh, possibilities of change at the founding. And uh, if you're going to say something's got possibilities of change now, uh, it has to have had those possibilities of change at uh, the founding. Um, we do talk a little bit about the idea that an entity could gain new powers of change over time, um, and we uh, reject it. Uh, the reason is uh, that identity is transitive. So this is uh, a variant uh, on an argument uh, that was made in the uh, 18th century about uh, memory not being the criterion for personal identity because you might have person uh, at time one remember uh, something at, or person at time three remember something at time two and person at time two remember something at time one but person at three time three not remember remember something at, at time one the presupposition of that is that identity is transitive similarly for an entity to you know first you know we're if we're uh, assuming it doesn't have the power to undergo a certain change and then you say, oh, well, here's, here's something that could happen. It could first acquire the power to undergo that change and then undergo that change. I think that's just inconsistent with the transitivity of identity. You're not, uh, that's not something something can do. Uh, to uh, be able to acquire a power of change and survive as the same entity is just to have that power of change already. Um, so I'm not sure that uh, is super comprehensible, express that quickly, but uh, we think that is conceptually uh, not something that can happen. Well, so in closing, I wonder if the two of you could reflect on what your sort of investigation and discussion of the meaning of the oath in terms of identifying these kind of ontological features of the constitution should what the takeaway should be for someone who doesn't already consider themselves an originalist and doesn't already see the constitution as being um, kind of fixed at one point in time and changing only in pre-described ways. Now, someone who didn't already sort of take those kind of those propositions for granted what what do you think they what do you want those people to take away from your article one thing we we do hope people will do um who you know maybe disagree about uh first order originalism whether you know they they might think well no original meaning that's not binding how, how, how could it be binding uh i think that if they reflect on these aspects of our current culture they will be impelled to go back to the founding and think well okay let's see if we can uh uh, get Washington on our side. Uh, I think arguments like H. Jefferson Powell's uh, argument from 1985, uh, just questions about the constitutional theory at the founding, 
Um, uh, Jonathan Genap's book uh, uh, talks about these things. We, we hope that we can uh, uh, address those sorts of uh, concerns in the future. I think that will, it should cause them to be much more interested in those uh, sorts of issues. Uh, go back to the founding, maybe not for, for original meaning, uh, but for original constitutional theory. Uh, so I hope that it will increase uh, the interest of non-originalists in original constitutional theory, if nothing else. Yeah, relatedly, um, the leading non-originalist theories of constitutional interpretation pretty much all incorporate a significant um, place for established constitutional practices and understandings. And in our article, we trace through the span of you know, more than a century rhetoric public representations about the nature of the constitutional oath and the objects of the oath. Um, insofar as that's the case, and we've found this very consistent tradition, um, non-originalists, I think, to the extent that they take the oath as a, or the importance of the oath as at least a provisional fixed point in Methodology, uh, methodology about interpreting the Constitution and um, thinking about the moral responsibility of public officials, um, even if they don't completely buy the idea that this Constitution is the originally textually expressed content of the Constitution, um, need to incorporate that understanding that's consistently expressed. Um, into their accounts of how public officials today should discharge their interpretive and moral obligations. Um, and I would also stress the case that we're making isn't like an inexorable um, case that, you know, if you promise, therefore you're committed, should the heavens fall. Um, but at least the oath and the founder's constitution as the object of the oath is a starting point. And a lot of non-originalists are prepared to concede that, you know, um, you at least start with the original constitution. Um, and when it's clear, you follow it. It just so happens that in most litigated constitutional cases, matters aren't clear. You know, we could debate about that, but that's at least somewhere where people of a variety of interpretive, uh, interpretive persuasions can converge in, in good faith and tr trying to figure out uh, what to do with this document. Yeah, so when we're talking about constitutional questions being unclear, what is it that is unclear? Uh, uh, if we can get a le at least agreement about that, that's some progress. Right. We're disagreeing about something. We're not clear about the content of something. Uh, we're not talking about two fundamentally different subject matters and therefore talking past each other. Mm, mm, excellent. So at least, at least in a position to have a conversation. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, it was a fun conversation to have with both of you, uh, Chris, Evan. Thanks so much for making the time to come on the program. Thank you, Brian. And thanks for being patient as I absconded to a different location to, to deal with this, uh, this somewhat unwieldy technology. Thanks so much, Brian.
Oh, it's gonna be 